All right. I'm Bradley J, and uh, I'm not sure what to call this yet. Perhaps the J cast, J talking, whatever. And I'm here with one of my very favorite guests, Lawrence Goldstone, who's been on a bunch of times. Can you remember, Lawrence, uh, some of the topics that you addressed with me in the late nights? Hey, I'm, it, was, it was always great fun. We've talked about automobiles, aviation, submarines, um, a bunch of things about constitutional law, which we'll probably do today. Uh, oh, and old surgery, believe it's surgery in the 1890s, you know, because I've done both fiction and nonfiction. And so, I, and we might have done the McKinley assassination. Okay. I don't, I don't think we did surgery. I'd like to do surgery. I used to be an operating room technician, to tell you the truth. So that would be of, I know I would remember it if we'd done that. So maybe that was my that. first novel, Anatomy of Deception. Oh, I want to, I want to do that later. But this one is on account of race. It's, it's a, it's a look at an effort on the behalf, on the part of the Southern states to deprive African-Americans of the vote. And uh, right around 1877 re reconstruction time. And Lawrence, I know it, and this is Lawrence Goldstone, by the way, in case I didn't properly introduce him, Lawrence Goldstone. It sounds simplistic, but why? Why did the South want to do this? I, I know in general why, but specifically why? Was it well competition for jobs? Was it just they didn't view African-Americans as people? What was it? No, I mean, they had lost. You know, they, they lost the Civil War, which they never really accepted. They believed... They, they believed deeply that black people were inherently inferior and to allow, when, when, when um, uh, they did Birth of a Nation in 1918 and showed these bestial black people, they, most Southerners really believed that. And they were forced by, they were, the, the army occupied the South until 18, early 1877, and they were forced to accept four million newly freed slaves as fellow citizens. And if you read the writings of some of the people, they were just aghast. They said, Northerners don't understand. Now, as, as hideous as the racism was, it wasn't insincere. So a group, so what started a movement to redeem the South, and that started with violence with the KKK and a bunch of other white supremacist groups. And then they moved on to voter fraud. Um, they would stuff ballot boxes because the black, black people had been given the right to vote um, by the 15th Amendment in theory and were forced, and white Southerners were forced to allow them to vote because the army was there. And then they moved some three stages. So the first was violence, the second was fraud, and then the third one was after these two had basically allowed white people to take back Southern state legislatures, each of the Southern states drafted a new constitution which they were publicly, the public, they, they didn't hide it, was to take the vote away from black people. And many of these constitutions were tested in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upheld every one of them. And as a result, you had Jim Crow and horrible segregation for six decades. Are there some Supreme Court justices that we honor as great, but weren't so great because they let this happen? Well, Oliver Wendell Holmes is definitely not deserving of at least some of his reputation. He was a brilliant legal scholar um, and in many ways, and gave us a lot, of, a, a lot of lines that we like and in some ways was a very good justice. But in 1903, when he was first on the court, 
He wrote the opinion in a case called Giles versus Harris, which um, upheld the, the segregationist Alabama constitution, which was the final nail in the coffin of black voting. In addition, by the way, in 1927, he wrote an opinion which, um, which legitimized the forced sterilization of a 19-year-old of a girl in Virginia named Carrie Buck, who was supposedly retarded, although she was not. And in his um, opinion, he wrote the line, three generations of imbeciles are enough. So Holmes's record is definitely mixed. But he, before he died, this is great, Bradley, before he died, he went through his papers and destroyed any papers of his that put him in an unfavorable light and only saved the stuff that made him look good. So the biographers come along, the guy looks wonderful. And in many ways he was, but in many ways he wasn't. What were some of the methods that the states used to uh, prevent African-Americans from voting? Well, they, they, had, they had a bunch. In one, they would have a literacy test where uh, in the state constitution, a person who wanted to vote would have to read and explain a passage in the, in the state constitution. And if a white person came up, because, because there was a lot, of, a lot of fear among illiterate whites that they would lose the vote as well. So a white person would come up to the voting registrar and the voter registrar would say, would point to the, the top line and say, what does that say? And the guy would say, South Carolina. Okay, you're allowed. A black person would come and they would point to something way, way down that was in the densest of legalese and say, read and explain this. And of course they couldn't. I mean, there, were, there was a college president in Mississippi who could not pass the literacy test. So you could see it was, it was loaded dice. South Carolina had another great thing they called the eight, the eight box ballot. It was, a, it was a ballot that had eight holes in it, each with the name of a candidate. And you had to fill out, and you, when you filled out your vote, you had to write the, the name of the candidate. So you had to match the name of the candidate with the box. And of course, you know, a lot of people couldn't read back then. So that, that took a lot of people out. And of course, if it's a white person, they would say, put it there. If it's a black person, you're on your own. And uh, I read that grandfather clauses were used. How did, what do you mean by that? Well, a grandfather clause, in law, the grandfather clause would say, you know, for example, <clears throat> if there's a change in zoning where your property all of a sudden is too big for the, the area of the town that you lived in, <clears throat> they would say, well, your grandfather, you can keep the property. But if you sell it, then the other person has to subdivide it a little bit. So grandfather clauses are legitimate legitimate in law to allow people not to be uh, put at a disadvantage by a new law. But the Southerner, what the Southerners did was they would say, okay, if you, your father or your grandfather fought in any war, the, the Civil War, the Spanish-American Spanish War, going back, you're automatically allowed to vote. Now, of course, sl slaves weren't in any of this. If you didn't have someone fighting in those wars, you can't vote. So it, the Southern states adopted a gr grandfather clauses that actually used real grandfathers, which, is the, which was 
kind of which was kind of a first. And that was um, that was uh, considered unconstitutional in 1915. That was the first of these contrivances to be declared unconstitutional. So how much of this was really the South, and how much of it was a, a more pervasive institutional prejudice, North and South? Was it really most of the South? Well, it was done in the South, but the prejudice was pervasive. Look, in, in, in 1883, they had something called the civil rights cases, <clears throat> which, was, which were um, testing the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which, may, which gave free access, regardless of race, to places like theaters and public conveyances and restaurants. Not one of those five cases in that 1883 case came from the Deep South. One was from New York, one was from San Francisco. Racism existed across the country. And after the Civil War, there was a certain amount of feeling that, yeah, we had to do something for the freed slaves. But that feeling started to ebb relatively quickly. And by the 1880s and 1890s, most Northern whites had very little interest in doing anything to protect Black people. Now, in the South, it was much more active, much more violent, uh, and much more pervasive. But the feeling was nationwide. All right, let's get into some more specific stuff, like what you call the myth of judicial review when it comes to Marshall, Mar uh, Marbury versus Madison and John Ooh, Marshall. You're, Bradley, you're jumping to another book. Good for you. I love somebody who's read my stuff. Anyway, the, the opening case in almost every con law textbook is Marbury versus Madison, which is an 1803 case where John Marshall, in a 10,000-word opinion, said it is the job of the Supreme Court to say what the law is. And it was the first time that a law was declared unconstitutional by um, the Supreme Court. And the whole, it wasn't a whole law, it was one little passage in the, the, very, the, the very first two things that the first Congress did was draft a Bill of Rights, 12 amendments boiled down to 10, and passed the Judicial Act of 1789, because the Constitution hadn't really specified how the federal court system would be set up. Didn't even say how many justices would be on the Supreme Court. So they left it to Congress, and Congress did. Um, without going into the details of the case, which are really funny and very complex, uh, a man named Marbury sued Secretary of State James Madison to be given an appointment that John Adams gave him right before and called the midnight appointments, literally the night before Adams was going to give up the presidency to Thomas Jefferson. Marbury sued. Um, he was a Federalist. John Marshall is a fellow Federalist. Marshall ruled that a certain passage in the, judicial, in the Judiciary Act of 1789 was unconstitutional. And Jefferson kind of got what he wanted, so they didn't question it. The problem is there is nothing in the Constitution that gives the Supreme Court the right to declare a law unconstitutional. There was nothing in the constitutional debates. If you read the debates, there was no discussion of judicial review. The, and the last thing was uh, William Blackstone, who was the godfather of conservative justices everywhere, said you never let the courts overturn an act of the legislature. Only the legislature can do that, because if you allow them to do it, it becomes judicial tyranny. So Marshall, through the back door, brilliantly establishes this right of judicial review. And the next time, by the way, it was used, it was in Dred Scott, the 
the most notorious case in history. And now it is a regular, it is a regular tool of the court, a, re a regular weapon of the court to change legislative policy, to change, and, and it, it doesn't exist. It was, it was fake. Um, in 1996, Antonin Scalia said, um, there's nothing about judicial, you know, I believe the constitution is as written and he went on and on. But the one thing is we don't, um, there is no power of judicial review. We made that up, but we made it up for very good reason because it's the job of the courts to say what the law is. Not necessarily. Does anyone ever challenge uh, judicial reviews to, to, to say it's not a thing? It shouldn't be a thing from, from this point forward? Well, the problem is there's only two ways to do it. You either have to pass a constitutional amendment now that it's part of the jurisprudence, or you have to go to the court and say to the court, by the way, guys, judicial review, you got it illegitimately, you have to give it up. And I don't know that that would really fly with, right. with the justices. So you can question it, but it would take, it would take a change of, it probably doesn't need, a, probably just a change in the law, but it just isn't going to happen. All right, we're with, uh, folks, we're with Lawrence Goldstone, and the, the main event here is his book, which just came out today, right? Yesterday. Yesterday. It's called On Account of Race, and it's a, a look at the Southern states' efforts to deprive African Americans of votes. Now, what are some of the things that individual states did? Some of the cases, actual uh, cases. Well, the, the, the one I discussed with Oliver Wendell Holmes, Giles versus Harris, that was, the, that was the most important. Uh, but there was another case called Williams versus Mississippi, which was 1898, I think, where they upheld the Mississippi, the Mississippi State Constitution, uh, Mills versus Green, where they upheld the Louisiana Constitution. And people, there, there were black activists, black lawyers, and some of them were from the South to, with, a, a, with an enormous personal risk, pursued these cases and, and had all sorts of documentary evidence. Because remember, the white Southerners, they announced what they were doing. They went in the newspapers, in Congress, on the halls, on the floors of their state legislatures, and said, we are doing this to get, and black people, although they didn't call them black people, out of the voting box. This was an open, this was, it wasn't even an open secret. It was just open. But the court found reasons to always uphold them, and the logic was absurd. Okay, how about the strange case of the Chinese laundry? Ah, that's a different, but I will, Yick Wo versus Hopkins. That's a great case. But I, one thing I want to say, the reason I wrote the book is because voter suppression is one of the biggest issues we have now. And this election, in coming in November, voter suppression is going to be an enormous issue because you can see Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's desire not to refund the post office is to try to prevent voting by mail. He said, if you vote by mail, we'll never elect another Republican. What ha what's happening in Georgia, what has happened in a number of states. So I want people to know what happened before and that the court was at the center of it and that the court's gonna be at the center of this one. Now, you go ahead. Has uh, voter suppression been a problem in recent history as well, like last well, sure. 20 years, last 50 years? Um, well, once the Voting Rights Act 
you know, in, in, in Selma, Alabama, for example, before the Voting Rights Act, there were 15,000 black people and 300 of them were eligible to vote. After the Voting Rights Act, within weeks, I think there were like eight to 9,000 eligible to vote. So voter suppression until the Voting Rights Act was a huge big deal. And then Shelby County versus Holder in 2015, when John Roberts wrote an opinion that called certain parts of the Voting Rights Act unconstitutional, judicial review again, Texas and a number of other states immediately implemented other means of voter suppression, many of which are, they're all tested in the court, many of which have been upheld by the conservative justices. So it's a really big deal. And what we, what we need to recognize is that, that even though the conservative judges are saying, we are following the word of the Constitution, they're not. It's all interpretive. The Constitution was written to be vague. What you see on both sides, liberal and conservative, are legal scholars, in theory, analyzing words and saying, this is what I think they mean. But it has become so politicized that what they think they mean always seems to dovetail with their own political views. Are there any other modern methods of voter suppression? I know there are, but uh, other than the post office, closing the post office, what else is used currently? Well, you can, you can, you, uh, you, you suppress early voting, you do the voter ID, you know, you, you target groups, you make it look race neutral. This was the old strategy. You make it look race neutral. You say anyone who doesn't have a legitimate ID from uh, a where they live for the last five years has to do X, Y, and Z, knowing that the people who will fall into that category are migrant workers, say, or minorities. So what they do is they contrive, and this is what they did in the, in the period that I wrote about. They contrive, they contrive um, little gambits which seem to apply to everyone equally, but in fact, only apply to certain groups, and those are the groups they want to essentially get rid of. Which, by the way, is what Yip Wo, the Chinese laundry case, was about. Hey, do you happen to have a copy of the book to, to hold up and show us right there? Uh, don't go away. I won't. That's cool. I have returned. Yay. There, there we are. Nice. Is it must be rewarding for you to actually see each of these books in hard hardcover come out, right? You know, it's it's great. And it's it's there's I've been doing this a long time and there's just you never get tired. It's a lot of work. You know, it starts on the page, you're doing an outline, you have an idea, you read you're reading it over a hundred times, hundred and fifty times. It comes back from the editor, then you get pages, then you get this, and then finally, with this magical process, the book comes out. And it's, it stays. And I, I wrote a book called Inherently Unequal in 2011, which came out and got a decent amount of play. So like, okay, but not great. But now people still read it. I see it in articles. There was an article in the Atlantic last year. I based an article on that book. So there is something magical about once the book exists, it, it attains this kind of metaphysical feeling, and it, it is it's just really cool. So in the beginning, it's, of course, hard to get a book published. That was, the, I'm, I'm guessing, the, the hardest one, the first one, right? To, 
they don't know who you are. And it was in, took me four years. How, tell me about the process. Well, um, my my wife, we both, my wife and I both worked on Wall Street, and she always wanted to be a writer. She took a writing class, and the writing teacher who was supposed to be this great adult education writing teacher said she was no good. I said you were very good, so she submitted things to the New York Times hers column, which they had, got picked up. She started, she was a trader, one of the first women to run a trading desk on Wall Street. So she said, yeah, maybe I'll write about that. That got picked up. And so she's like in heaven and I'm thinking, God, you know, I really would love to do this. And she said, you know, take a shot. So I wrote a, I wrote a book about racial politics in New York City called Rights. And People read it, some people read it, they said, oh, I love it. Um, some people said, no, but nobody would publish it. And then four years later, some a guy named Marty Shepard at Permanent Press published it. I got a $1,000 advance for four years work, and I have not earned back the advance to give, tell you how badly that one sold. It was, I, I, I won an award, and I was just hooked, and I just knew I could never do anything else. How much of the reward or, or the goodness you feel about each book is based upon sales and how much on how, you know, how good you know it is? I mean, it's, a, it's a, like talk show hosts. Too many of them will base their, their sense of success on the number of calls they get, which is not correct. I, I, I don't think they should base it on that. How, how, how much do you base yours on sales? Look. Anybody who says that they don't want people to read their stuff is a liar. Of course you want your book to sell. But I would say knowing, look, Vincent Van Gogh sold one painting in his lifetime. You just, it is, I would say that 90% of it for me, and, and look, I'm not a bestseller. I've got, I sell, some of my stuff sells decently, some of it doesn't. But it's the doing, it's the work. It, you know, it's... I get night. I would say I would get seventy percent of the pleasure in doing it while I'm writing it, and another twenty percent when you see it, and ten percent from sales. Would I like sales? Sure. If somebody, if I would get, you know, had a front page review in the New York Times Book Review, would, would I like? You know, it's a good one. Yeah, I'd love it. But anybody who does it for that reason, anybody who goes into the arts to be famous or to be a big time seller or to go to parties, man, that's a huge trap. You know, the answer is in, the answer is in the work I'm doing. I'm working on like three different things now and it's wonderful. You know, just every morning I wake up, I think about what comes next. The process, the process is, is everything. But yeah, sure you wanna sell. Before you go, what are the three things you're working on now? I'm working on an adult version and a high school version of the record of um, prejudice toward Asian Americans in the West, which led up to Japanese internment. And that started, you know, in, essentially as soon as the Chinese workers first came here after the gold rush. So there was this long period of anti-Chinese uh, prejudice, and then the Japanese replaced the Chinese. And so the internment, there's a Korematsu versus the United States, a 1944 case. People write about that and write about internment. But I'm much more interested in everything that went before, alien land laws, and all the things that led up to it and kind of made that inevitable. And the third thing is, just yesterday, 
I'm branching out. I, I, I got approval to do a graphic novel, a serious graphic novel for high school kids and adults on citizenship and what, what uh, how American immigrant immigration and the history of how we uh, tried to keep America white for a very long time. And there are those who are trying to get America white again. Um, so I've got those three things that totally, writing for high school and writing for adults is kind of different. Writing a graphic novel, my end of it is a film script. That's what I ha have to hand in. It's just, so I'm having a great time. It's all good. Uh, I'm in Boston. Where is it I'm looking at out your window there? This is uh, Sagaponic, New York, Bridgehampton, New York, in the, in the Hamptons. In fact, I am looking in this very direction. If I could throw a ball far enough, I could probably hit your window. <laughs> Me too. Well, Lawrence Goldstone, this has been great. Thank you so much. The new book. Thank you, Bradley. On account of race. Pick it up. Hope you enjoy it. Talk to you soon, sir. There it is. Thanks a lot, Bradley. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. bye, -bye.